for the memories. You've got a friend in us. This is episode one. He knows you're alone from 1980. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski, and a little behind-the-scenes magic to kick this podcast off. We recorded the first episode of Cruise Club last night, the other half of our Tom Tom Club. So we're going a little bit back in time here, from 1981 to 1980, to talk about the other Tom, Tom Hanks. And we talked about how that was such a brilliantly beautiful way to start that off, like this, like, schlocky teen romance you know, trash movie, wonderful. This, we were like, oh shit, we got a slasher movie. I was so bored for so much of this movie. It's just like, I mean, Hanks himself saves the day uh, with a little bit of burst of energy here, and I got a little bit of trivia about that. But man, like for a slasher movie, like there's not a lot that happens. It's just a bunch of people like kind of complaining about things. Yeah, I was really surprised what they're focused on throughout this movie. Like, it's I thought it started pretty well. Like, there's yeah. that nice fake out, kind of like the thriller yes. music video, where you think mm-hmm. you're watching the movie, but it pulls out and it's actually two girls watching a horror movie. But then I was like, hold on, how long am I going to watch a movie? Oh with yeah, people watching a movie. Like, it's not like it's Demoni, that demon movie we watched that one night, but like. That's a whole different story. Basically, up until the last 15 minutes, this felt like a PG slasher movie to me, like something that like you'd show your younger brother, you know, when you rented Nightmare on Elm Street, you would rent this for like your eight-year-old brother or something. It's such a softcore, boring slasher movie. Thank goodness Hank shows up and has like a pretty great little sequence with some awesome dialogue. Yeah, like until it gets sort of to the requisite nudity, right, where the woman that Hank's is, I guess, dating... I have so many questions we need to figure out. Whether she takes a shower in this movie and then gets murdered. Until then, there isn't, like, there's not really blood. There's insinuated murder. We see people sort of get stabbed, but, like, not really. It's got more of, like, a, I feel like it's, trying to go for more of like a Hitchcockian thing and then at times it even felt stalkery like the original Halloween like that is how I feel like they were going for the scares it was like creepy jump scares someone's following me but they would cut away from all of the gore would you say in addition to being Hitchcockian that it might also be a little uh, John Carpenter Halloween yeah yeah precisely (laughs) so it came out the year after Halloween the score was identical like the score was like Basically the same thing, not as good. There are shots of the main girl walking down the street in, like, what basically, like, looking like Jamie Lee Curtis taken out of the beginning of Halloween. It just sort of feels like that was a massive hit. Let's do the same thing here. And this is credited, according to Wikipedia, as one of the first movies to take influence from Halloween and do that slasher thing again. Because this it was started shooting in 1979, came out in 1980. So obviously, Halloween, massive success. He knows you're alone, trying to capitalize. Obviously not a huge movie, because I'd never heard of this, and I don't think you had that you've never heard of this either, right? No. And it's got like like Paul Gleason is in this and like I recognize the the teacher. James, well James Rebhorn, yeah, the uh the aide or whatever from Independence Day. It's so weird. Yeah, and Paul Gleason from Breakfast Club, like he's the principal. Um like so strange. And I think the reason Halloween, you know, one of the many reasons Halloween did much better than this is because it was very simple and to the point and you can follow it whereas this movie is very tough to follow which yes i, I want to get to the i want to get to that in one second okay okay so this movie was supposed to cost five hundred thousand dollars supposed to shoot in texas 
That financing fell through. Budget was halved, moved to Staten Island, filmed, I think, in two weeks, and completely from start to finish, from writing the script to finish editing, was six months. It was a ridiculously quick endeavor, cost $250,000 to make, made $5 million. So not a massive hit, but made a ton of money considering the low budget, and also kickstarted the career of one young Tom Cru- Tom Hanks. I'm going to do that yeah. so many times. I know that I'm going to say Tom Cruise instead of Tom Hanks so many times. <laughs> you know, not a lot of this type of slasher stuff to choose from back then, I suppose. So, like, maybe they were really they really rode that, that wave there for a minute there. And it got people in seats, but, uh, you know, didn't give it the lasting power <laughs> or anything. Like, it doesn't deserve any of that. Okay, so I've got questions for you that I do not have the answer to. And I maybe this is just, I think part of this is the movie just being bad. Part of this is... Maybe I missed something, but I want to know. Okay, so the killer, who we see very early on, which I thought was very surprising. He's not masked. He's not, you know, a monster. He's just a man. And I think when he kills either, I think the first one, when he kills the woman in the theater, or maybe the second time he kills somebody, we just see his face. And so there's no suspense that, like, it's not the main guy. It's not, what's his name? Marvin. I never caught a killer's name. I know we have Detective Gamble. Oh, the killer's name is Ray. Okay. So the main kid is Marvin, and the killer, so the guy the guy who plays the killer is Tom Rolfing, that's the actor. He's credited on IMDb as Ray Carlton, in parentheses, the killer. So he's just Ray the killer, and I think part of what makes movies like this good is that you don't know, like, maybe it's someone you know is the killer. Like, maybe it is Marvin killing people to get back at his, you know, get Amy back and win her over and beat her husband or whatever, right? But we learn really early on, no, it's just, it's another guy that was shocking that they would reveal the killer in the opening sequence because it doesn't it takes all the air out of it like yeah. you make you know you're you don't there's no guessing game or anything no. and so that was a bummer especially when like you just said it would have made more sense if it was that dude who worked at the morgue because they're trying to say like this is the fiance killer you know like that's his mo like this guy only goes after people who are about to get married or they're engaged and stuff and then like the detective on the case his wife was murdered by the same guy by him yeah and this detective on the case takes this i mean with that i guess it'd be hard not to but he takes this case so personally he's like he sees one clue he's just like i know exactly who this is he's back like it almost feels like the zodiac killer to him where they're like oh he's back like you know he made this another like string of kills he's back again we got to catch him before he leaves although it doesn't seem like he has any intention of leaving now he just seems he's like on the, like he's on a murderous rampage that the he leaves one clue and the detective is like that's my guy. I don't care what you say. He's the killer. I'm going to go catch him. <laughs> the detective, though, aside from Hanks, clearly the MVP of the movie, I think. Oh, yeah. And his mustache. But mm. that's, the thing is, like, I would have, I wanted, we needed more. So there's no balance to this story. Like, we needed way more time with the cop because it feels like it should be about the cop. Because after all, like, this is his second chance to get the killer who killed his wife on their wedding night. And he got away. And there's even, <laughs> there's even that. I think I might go with uh, my favorite after Hanks moment when the killer's on the bus and he has the flashback to the point of view murder. But we spend way too much time with the girl who's being stalked. Like, there's one moment where she goes to get her dress she tries on her wedding dress and like we're watching her doing her fucking whole fitting I'm like what am I watching although although I do love it because again I don't know if this is the movie having a low budget or this is just how it was back then but she goes to buy her wedding dress or maybe just get a fitting or whatever by herself the only other person in the entire store is the dressmaker who's like this old guy who after he's like pinning the dress 
sort of like near her boob, is like, just think of me as your father. And they both laugh about it. And he's chomping on a lit cigar the entire time. And she's coughing, which, aside from the fact that you are causing an inconvenience to your customer, you're making every dress you own stink like cigars. Like, what is going... Like, this is bonkers. Like, I love this guy because it feels like none of this is authentic. Or maybe it was. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. The guy, the, the guy Ralph, I was like, why is this guy running the dress <laughs> store and, like... Yeah, the cigar, he's like, I make my wife hold my breath when she's around me. And it's like, oh, yeah, I just figured, dude, like, you're a creepo. To put context to that, that was because she doesn't like the smell of the cigar either. Yes, yes. So that was, yes. It's not like some, like, perverted sex thing. It's just like, I'm going to smoke a cigar no matter who says no. Uh, I make my wife hold her breath. You can hold your breath, too. Yes. And and I thought they were setting that whole sequence up for the girl to get murdered. Oh, definitely. And fucking Ralph gets murdered. I'm like, the killer's breaking his M.O. immediately. Yeah. Like, how are we supposed to catch him now? And the cop comes on the scene, and it's the best. Or he gets a call, and he's like, I, I don't care. I only care about fiancés getting killed. And the guy's like, well, this guy was found murdered at a wedding dress store. And he's like, holy shit, it's him. <laughs> So here's my first question. Does the killer know anyone in this movie other than the cop? I think the answer is no. I'm pretty sure the answer is no. He doesn't even seem to know that the cop is onto him again. Like, the cop thinks it's this whole cat and mouse game, but, <laughs> but I think it's just a cat game. Like, <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, there's, uh, yeah. Like, there's no interplay there. Like, the killer doesn't say a word this entire movie. Yeah, that's right. Which is kind of cool. Like, there's cool ideas here. Like, I kind of like the fact that, like, there's a bait and switch here. Like, when Amy Jensen, the bride-to-be... So, okay, so... She is alone now because it's the weekend before her wedding and her fiancé and all of his buddies are on a bachelor party. Shout out future Hanks for the Memories bachelor party. And I, I thought Hanks was going to be Phil. So did I. Yeah. I thought that was the reveal. We get one shot of Phil shirtless calling her from his bachelor party. And she doesn't answer. No. Yes. And I thought either it was going to be, like, I thought we might go there. I thought, he, I didn't think Hanks was going to be the fiancé. I guess he could have been. I thought he might have been, like, best friend to the fiancé, but whatever. That is irrelevant to the story, essentially. He just needs to be out of town. So at the dressmaking shop, the bridal shop, she's in the changing room and there's like the creepy music starts playing like the exactly the the halloween theme sped up a little bit and marvin the ultimate hero of the movie sticks his head in the changing room while his ex-girlfriend and now bride to be to another man is in her underwear getting changed this guy is the guy that we're supposed to be rooting for and not only that she thinks it's like a joke and a fun thing that he's doing because she's like laughing along she invited him to the wedding like they are it is really comfortable really uncomfortably so so the and the previous scene we're just following amy like around and she's like goes and gets an ice cream cone remember that for no reason oh yeah but then marvin shows up and is like hey i'm back baby like you don't have to marry that guy phil and she's like you know marvin i told you we're done for and he is like not taking the hint he's like come on, you still love me. Look, I'm, I'm awesome. And like making her laugh. And she's like, oh, maybe I still like you. And I, but like, but like, yeah, that's the whole thing. Like she still does. But like, it's so weird that you said we're supposed to be on this guy's side. But from the beginning, he's trying to break up a wedding. Like that's not 
noble. Like this isn't supposed. This isn't a thing heroes do. <laughs> this is a kind of guy who's supposed to get stabbed to death in about twenty minutes, and that never happens. My favorite moment describing the relationship is when Amy is talking to her younger sister, and her younger sister's like, "Don't marry Phil. Marry Marvin. Marvin helps me with my homework. Phil helps me with my homework too, but he gets the answers wrong. Plus, Phil's younger brother's an even bigger asshole. It's like." Wait, wait, what? <laughs> like, this girl, like, it's just, like, everybody's got an opinion, and they're all of the same opinion, is that Phil sucks, Marvin's the guy, and yet Amy's kind of like, no, I still like him, but not really. Like, it's just, like, we come in at a real weird point in her life, I think, which I guess kind of makes sense, but also, it just, it's strange. And, and I just think they're getting, like, current event issues mixed up with their, like, horror tropes and things because they want to throw in like a lot of women's lib stuff you know right like that was sort of the thing at the time and, and there's a couple of lines about like women's lib and this and that and like when they're dancing and when she's like oh I'm dating you know my uh, my professor and he's married but like women's lib and I'm like I don't think it works that way um, I don't know if that's what they were going for but it's just really I feel like they're not quite sure how to do like a social horror movie but they want it to also feel like it's important for some some way like like almost like a like a dark after school special about stalkers or something like that right. is how it because like I said like it felt like a PG movie for like most of it up until the last 15 minutes so I was constantly confused like not just by the plot but by like the tone and what they were trying to achieve and who their audience was because I mean this cannot touch Hitchcock with a 10 foot pole like I do not care like what they were saying you know Hanks has a nice little speech about it but like I I'm sorry they never get there but it's it's just weird I'm just not sure what they're going for here. I'm not sure either. So, Okay, so question number two. We've already established that we think that the killer does not know anybody. Is he just blindly killing people that are related to weddings? So it seems like, how would he know the lady he stabbed in the opening was engaged? Like, that, I don't... Did we never find out how that came about. We just find out that, oh, she was engaged. Like, that's what the cops find out. Maybe he... I think he was stalking Amy, right? And then what I made up in my head is he decided to sort of kill everyone close to her and leave her to be the last victim, like the last girl. But then that feels so personal, but it isn't. Exactly. That's the thing. Like, it still doesn't make any sense. It just sort of sat in my head a little easier if I was like, okay, she's she's going to be saved for last, even though he should have just been going after her the whole time. Like, I, that's the thing. Like, I don't... If he's the fiancé killer, why is he killing Ralph the dressmaker and other men that aren't engaged to anyone and women you know like he kills Joyce and the professor when they're like running around the house in their underwear for 15 minutes I'm like guys yeah why <laughs> what is this so okay so question number three and this now ties us to well actually before we get to question number three so early on we meet Amy I think with her friends I think Nancy and Joyce maybe and Joyce is the one having the affair with the professor James Rebhorn who they meet on the street in the most awkward like he's <laughs> <laughs> he's a professor and like sees three girls they're like, hi, Professor, and he's with his wife, and the wife, this woman, this actress, is giving it her all. Like, she deserves an award for this, because she has to play, doesn't have a line, has to play essentially, like, dumb, but also at the same time, like, knows exactly what's going on, but can't let on. They say, hi, Professor, and James Rebhorn says, I'm sorry, who are you? Yeah. And they're all like, oh, we're in your class. He's like, oh, I've got so many students. I don't know your names. Like, oh, we're in your intro class. He's like, oh, of course, of course, of course. And then Joyce says, you wouldn't give me an F, would you? I guess the joke there is like, you wouldn't give me a fuck, I think. 
And then he's like, oh, ho, 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 better study up, then walks away, and it's just like to his wife, like, oh, those kids. And then meanwhile, they're not out of earshot, and they all just start, like, bursting into laughter. Like, it is the weirdest, most uncomfortable scene until we get to the point where Joyce is with the professor, and they're playing like this, like, this is the only cat and mouse game in the entire movie, Mike, where he's chasing her around the house, and she's, like, escaping his grasp, and, like, he wants to bang her on the kitchen table, again, in their home, where his wife lives, and she says, no, the table is too hard, so she threatens to jump out a window, is, like, hanging out the window, and he, like, closes the window on her legs, and then starts tickling her to, like, convince her to bang him on the table, and, like, I'm just thinking, how is this girl not falling out the window? It is truly (laughs) one of the most, like, what is this? I don't even, I can't follow, like, I don't understand why it's going on so long. He gets so mad at her so many times, and you think he's, like, gonna hit her, and then he's just, like, laughs it off, and she loves it. She loves being chased around the house by this guy. Like, it is better than the sex they're gonna have for her. Well, I don't, oh, they never get to that point because she ends up dead, but then we get to see that, too, like, the killer is sort of hanging out outside the window also, so... And he has, like, his, like, wind-up stab that he swings and misses when she gets rescued. Yeah. (laughs) That was great. Like, that whole sequence, like, oh my god, like, that was so crazy. Like, that's the thing. That's what the whole movie needs to be like. Yeah, yeah. Like, that at least was wacky fun kind of stuff. Like, I could see that in an actual uh, other slasher movie. Like, that was more along the tone I was hoping for the rest of the film was going to have, but it takes itself so seriously, or it doesn't let itself get loose like that ever again, even though it was just still crazy and out of control. Well, because what I like about the first kill, going back to that for a second, is that, like, I think I've probably seen this in other things before, but I think it's probably also after this. But, like, the timing is so perfect. It actually might have been in Demoni or something. But, like, he kills her as she screams as the whole theater screams, right? Yeah. That's cool timing. Like, that's a cool twist. And then it reminded me, weirdly, of a, a, a episode of Doug. I don't know if you ever watched Doug on Nickelodeon. Yep. But there was one episode where there was a horror movie that all the kids were seeing, and they were all talking about how scary it is, and Doug felt, like, inadequate because he was too scared to watch. And then he went and saw the movie again, and then forced himself to watch. And in this climactic scene, you see that the the killer or the monster or whatever on screen has a, a very visible zipper. And he, like, he realizes that no one's watching because everybody's too scared, but they're all trying to act like they're, they've seen the movie. And so, like, he's like, oh, it was so corny, so cheesy, whatever. And that was, like, the whole, don't give him the peer pressure, whatever the point of that is. Anyway, the reason I bring that up is because what I also liked about that scene is that when the detective is questioning people at the theater, they're all like, oh, I didn't see anything. My eyes were closed. I was too scared from the movie. And I was like, oh, like, that's kind of the perfect kill. Like, timing it right. No one's looking at you. It's somehow like the smartest movie kill in this entire movie and then it's all downhill from there i totally agree they they shot their wide in the opening like with the first kill like that is really that's why i thought this movie was going to be good going ahead like it actually got me to sort of pay attention and settle in and be like okay where's this going where's this going and then scene by scene i was just like uh-oh uh-oh and by the way i think that that scene was recreated i don't know but also done in the opening of scream 2 have you seen scream 2 I have. And so apparently they recreated this like shot for shot or something. I don't know if they did shot for shot, but like the idea is that like the ghost face killer takes its first victim at the screening of the movie Stabbed. 
based on the ghost face killings. Okay. So like everyone's at the movie theater and as the killer on the screen is killing somebody, he's killing, there's a guy in the audience who stabs somebody in a seat. So like, you know, it's the same, it's kind of the same play. And so like that works. That's a great gag. It's just unfortunate there aren't any other really great gags than the rest of the movie. Scream 2, the killer is Timothy Oliphant, right? Spoilers. I think there's always two killers. I okay. think it was also the um, Laurie Metcalf. Wasn't she oh, in there also? Oh, okay. Yeah, Lady Bird's mom. Yeah. Okay, so question number three, and this is where we get to Tom Hanks. Well, actually, no, I need to go back again because I, I, I detoured again. So the three girls, Amy, Nancy, and Joyce, are taking a ballet class, I guess? Like oh, Suspiria. Yeah. Yes, I thought <laughs> that too, for sure. But none of them want to be there. Like, they're all very tired of this. Or maybe it was just, like, the end of a long class. At the very end of the movie, when Amy is running away, I was like, you should have taken ballet class more seriously, because, like, she is winded immediately, like, running away from the killer. Like, she could not run at all before she, like, has to rest against the wall, which I guess is maybe realistic, kind of, like, more realistic than other movies. Uh, that's kind of smart, too, but I didn't pick up on it. But that would play well in a, in a slasher flick, like, establishing that you're out of shape early on in the movie, so that you, you know, when the time comes to be chased, like, the audience knows you're fucked. <laughs> like, you can't, you're going to get a cramp. I I feel like horror movies do that with like kids and inhalers and like oh, right. that's like the closest thing but I don't think they ever do like that out of shape thing and I don't know that Amy's really out of shape she just might be like lazy because she's clearly mm -hmm. in like wedding shape right you know what I mean like she's thin and she's you know presumably athletic but yeah and I feel like none of them they all seem just to be like average people yeah there's no like super overweight anyone or anything like that in this movie so there's the three of them there's Amy who is getting married to Phil there's Joyce who's sleeping with James Rebhorn, they both get killed by the killer because question mark. Oh, the lights, yeah, the lights go out and he goes down to check yes. on the fuse and he comes back up and again, we miss the entire kill. It's just she's dead in bed and he turns around and then he just like his eyes get wide and yep. then we cut to another something else. Yep. So the third girl is Nancy, who is jogging with Amy in the woods and points up to a running figure who is Tom Hanks and says, there's my victim. And I was like, what? And then she goes running after him. He trips her. They have a meet cute. And then they go on a date to the carnival. <laughs> so here's question three. I think the answer is no. Did they know each other before this? Because it feels like they should have. But I don't think that they did. So I don't think that they knew each other. I think she mentioned something earlier in the movie about some cute guy she saw while she was jogging. I actually think because they say, like, let's go jogging once or twice. and Oh, so she's like stalking him. I think so. I think she's had his eye, her eye on this guy. And so he happened to be there that day that they were working out or going for a run. But it's so strange that his move was to trip her. <laughs> he's like, he's, and he was kind of like, yeah, that's my move. Like, I thought I'd do that. And, uh, you know, that way I could talk to you. Oh. <laughs> I'm too tired to scream oh. from the pain you just caused me. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, don't be. I stretched out an extra foot to make sure I'd trip you. Why'd you do that? That would seem the best way to meet you. Oh. My name's Elliot. Hi. How do you do? I'm Nancy. <laughs> I hate jogging. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that was weird. And then the carnival is great, though. Like, Hanks, yes. I, I thought his only scene was going to be just that meet cute part because, uh, you know, the way last week went with Tom Cruise, he only got like about a minute. And in this, Hanks gets a nice sort of fleshed out, like another scene where he basically like states the movie's thesis about fear and stuff. I told you I can scared, Abe. No. Most people do, actually. I mean, like to be scared. It's uh, something primal, something basic. 
horror movies and the roller coasters and the House of Horror ride. I, I want to go on that next. <laughs> and you can face death without any real fear of dying. It's safe. You can leave the movie or get off the ride with a vicarious thrill and the feeling that you just conquered death. One hell of a first-class rush. Don't tell me you're a psychic. Oh, a good deductive guess. <laughs> I'm most interested in fear, the emotion of fear. For example, why after seeing Psycho were so many people afraid to take showers? Not me. I never saw the movie. You were afraid, right? You bet. Fear fascinates me. People pay to be scared. When you think about it, it's really ridiculous. Ridiculous. That's the word I was looking for. That was a really like nice little sort of dialogue he had. Definitely. So later in this episode, we will do like what? What if Tom Cruise was in this part instead? But you know, we talked about on the last episode when we did Cruise Club on Endless Love that I was like, uh, you know, he, Tom Hanks would be a nice guy, but in this, he kind of just wants to fuck. Yeah, I was surprised. He's he's not like wholesome. Like he seems kind of arrogant and he's throwing out all these facts like he's like oh i'm a psychology expert and he's like talking about uh the psychology of fear and why we love horror movies and i was like oh this is very meta for the time like they're talking about the movie that they're in and yeah i'm aware of that but then at the end of the the scene i think like the younger sister kind of smells the bullshit a little bit and uh at the end he's like well i'm actually like just in like pre-psych or whatever i'm in you know first year and they're all like kind of laugh at him yeah he's an, he's an, he's an intro to psych yeah intro to psych that's it uh it's yeah so like it's like that's the joke there but like we, we thought of him as this nice guy and he trips the girl to get with her and then it's like kind of impressing her by like negging the friend and like basically not believing amy even though amy's like amy's story is a little crazy and it also kind of seems like it's just wedding stress that's getting to her but like if anyone in this movie believed her a lot of people might have lived but nobody believes her not only does hank not, hank's not believe her but like no one believes her and that's you know, hashtag believe the women, first of all. But, like, I guess that's also because this is a horror movie, a slasher movie, whatever. But then they go on the ride. She sees the killer. Amy sees the killer. Then Hanks and Nancy go away for a second. He says, hey, you got a dime. Yes. I might want to call my roommate and have him vacate the premises. And Nancy says, why? And he says, I thought we might play a game of backgammon with all the, like, innuendo in the world. And she just says, I don't like games. It's like, oh, they're going to bang. Like, that was that was it. Say, have you got a dime? I want to call my roommate and have him vacate the premises. Why? Well, I thought we'd play a game of backgammon. I don't like to play games. And then, like, the next scene, essentially, is her in the shower alone, nudity, boobs, which I thought was very telling after he talks about Psycho and about how people didn't shower after they saw Psycho because they were afraid. Then she goes, lays on the floor, smokes weed, gets murdered. So I guess they banged and then went their separate ways, but, like, Hanks just drifts off into the night and we never see him again. But this is, like, a, a very different debut from Tom Cruise, but it's an equally, in ways, powerful, like, this is who I am on-screen kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of the Tom Hanks that we recognize from today is already there. Like, I don't know that he's, like, fully formed Hanks yet, but, like, there's a lot there already. Like, he's got super confidence. Like, he's really... You could tell maybe a little bit that he's, like, acting, but, like, I feel like he's pretty natural. He doesn't really have a lot of screen time, so... But I feel like he leaves a mark with that, like, small amount of time. I mean, he is pulling off that neckerchief, right? Which which kind of gave me uh, Woody vibes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, there you go. But it, it, was, it was weird, too 
to I was caught off guard by him not really being like a quote unquote nice guy necessarily. Right. Like he had sort of more of an edge to him. That's sort of <laughs> the the idea that they were going to go back to his dorm room and bone. Like that just didn't seem like the Hanks that I know now. But yeah, it was too bad that he just sort of disappears from the movie though. Like I thought he was going to be in it till the end and involved and get proven wrong that the killer actually does exist because I really thought that you know, Hanks was going to get taken out, but he survives. So here's the trivia. He was supposed to die, but the filmmakers liked him so much as an actor that they just didn't shoot his death scene. Oh. He was so charming, so charismatic that he literally escaped death in this movie because the, the filmmakers did not want to kill him, which I think from his first movie, I'm like, that's the most charming man in America. That's amazing. I love that because it kind of feels like he was supposed to be meeting his girlfriend and that's why she was like showering up and getting high and like Hanks was on his way and then maybe he got murdered and never made it. And so that's where it feels like it could have gotten cut. But eventually we find her head in a fish tank. I thought that was kind of funny. Which, so her death, she's wearing the headphones, listen to her, her turntable, basically gets decapitated. I thought it would have been cool for, a slight missed opportunity, for the killer to slice the headphone cord because her eyes were closed and like, and then slice her neck off. You know what I mean? Just like cut one, then cut the other, but that doesn't happen. Because that's Amy's house. That's where Amy lives with her sister. Nancy's just there visiting, I guess. I don't know. Question mark. Amy brings her sister to a party or to somewhere, comes back, Nancy's killed. Amy walks in and has the most subtle reaction in the world to looking (laughs) to her left and seeing a fish tank that the water is bloody red, like bright, bright red, with her best friend's head at the bottom of the fish tank. Like, she is... Maybe she's seen some shit. I don't know. But she is so nonplussed. Like, she is obviously upset, but she doesn't scream. Uh, She doesn't freak out. Her eyes just go a little bit wide, and she's like, that's not right. And then, from behind her, the killer emerges. Yes, I I wonder maybe if it's some level of shock or something, but it's not until... She knows she that the guy's there, too. That is what sets her off and sets off the final chase. And can I just say, like, the amazing car chase stunt when the guy is, like, hanging on the roof of the car? <laughs> what? And this is, again, why it sort of feels cheesy, because he's stabbing, like, he's shaking the car. He's not trying to break the window. He's just shaking the car while she's trying to fumble to find her keys. And then he starts stabbing the windshield with the knife. And I don't know if you were watching, but the knife visibly bends several times, like, it just bends and bends and bends. So not a real knife. She drives away. She's like, where did he go? And then he, like, just, his head slides down from the top of the windshield. And she sees him. And then he stabs through. She shakes him off the car and then crashes right into a telephone pole while he gets up and starts to chase her again. Like, it, it's pretty nonstop from that point where... It's the two of them alone. Like, I was actually a little surprised that they were able to keep up the momentum. Like, I mean, it's not its not that it's, like, interesting, but it is constant because, like, he chases her to the morgue and then there's, a like, a morgue chase as well, right? Where her ex-fiance, the guy who's trying to get her back, is involved. Marvin, yeah. The cop shows up mm-hmm. with the mu- and the cop and the killer finally have a scene together. But it's like there's well, hold on, no hold on. So, <laughs> so the cop calls to get information about something and call about Amy or whatever because he was at her house or something like that. And the, the dispatcher's like, oh, Amy just called. She's at the morgue. And he says, where the hell is the goddamn morgue? And then he gets the location. I just love that he's just like so in like such a blind rage over this killer that he's just like shouting at everyone and then he goes off to presumably save the day but in another twist doesn't like sort of kind of saves the day but ultimately doesn't which is crazy 
Yeah, and and when he confronts the killer, there's like no confrontation. Like it isn't like I was expecting what should have happened if the movie was more balanced and like we spent the time we needed to with the cop and and all of his trauma and shit because I mean like early on even like Paul Gleason's got a line where like yeah, his wife was murdered a while back, really screwed him up bad. Like he went nuts, man. And I was like, "Wait, they let him back on the force after all this?" But like when he sees this guy, this killer again, there's like no speech or anything or nothing like he's not like finally we're face to face and I can confront you and or something like the cop did not seem to be useful when he needed to be. I think it was the ex-boyfriend that ended up sort of saving the day. Well, so first of all, I agree with you that this should have been his like Ronnie Camareri moment. Like I lost my hand. I lost my bride. You killed my wife, blah, blah, blah. But so what happens is the killer is chasing after Amy. The cop shoots the killer killer falls face down cop goes over the killer is like amy get out of here amy is just hysterical she's like crying screaming blah blah blah. he's like get out of here get out of here get out of here she doesn't leave he's watching her the killer gets back up stabs and kills the cop oh i thought the cop was at the wedding in the end maybe maybe i don't know he stabs the cop for sure and i don't know if he kills the cop or not but the cop is out for the count and that's when amy runs off and now the killer is sort of hobbling slightly that's when she's able to lock herself in that door in that like room jurassic park style kind of he breaks the window doesn't try to stab her for whatever reason and then marvin kind of saves her at least gets to her and gets her out of there they take out the the killer there just madness (laughs) and then the, the twist at the end Oh, I loved it. Is that we are now, it's the it's the wedding day, but instead of marrying Phil, she's marrying Marvin because they shared such a bond. You know, I guess what's, you know, in, in Speed, like it's not, I guess it's not true. In, you know, it's not true in Speed or whatever that like relationships formed over like shared trauma sometimes do work. Although we never really get to see if that works or not because she turns around. She's like, Phil, what are you doing here? Screen goes red, about to get stabbed by the killer, by Phil. Cycle continues once again. So it points probably accurately so. That all men are monsters. There we go. So here's what's even crazier. So, like, I knew the killer was killed at the end of it, but this final sequence is like a point of view. It feels like a dream sequence. It's shot and looks exactly like the dream sequence that the killer had when we were seeing him kill the fiance on her wedding day. So I was like, wait a second, is the killer dead? Did he sneak back in? But then she turns around and she goes, Phil? And I was like, oh, the cycle continues. Like, the evil jumped from one to the other, and now we've got another psycho ex-fiance for part two, if they ever wanted to do a part two. Yeah. So two two little bits of trivia about the movie. Number one, Hanks, Tom Hanks was on David Letterman, I don't know when, doesn't have a year, and said he was talking about how ridiculous it was that when they shot that carnival scene that they were supposed to look like they were having a good time because apparently it was freezing. And he's like, it's so crazy to me that we're supposed to be having fun when we're so miserable out there. So, you know, it is first acting gig really coming through clutch. Good acting, Tom Hanks. He looked like you're having fun. Yeah, definitely. I, and those scramblers aren't a lot of fun to go on. At no. least I didn't like those as a kid. <laughs> and the only other thing I have is that Armand Mastriani, who is the director, says horror fans frequently confuse this movie with When a Stranger Calls, because they have a similar kind of name. And what's weird, he said, was that they both played at a New York City theater at the same time, and the marquee read, When a Stranger Calls, He Knows You're Alone. So it was like this one really long movie title. The only other thing that I wanted to mention, that I, I, we sort of called attention to it, but didn't really specifically call it out, was that Tom Hanks, or Tom, oh my god, I'm going to do it every time, don't cut it out, Tom Cruise is known for running, and the first time 
time we see Tom Hanks on screen, he's jogging. So like, again, Tom Toms love to run. Great crossover there. That's what we got to maybe see if we could have a list of things the other Tom Tom Nexions. Yeah. Yeah, Tom Nexions. Do you have anything else to say about this movie? I don't think that I do. No, not really. I was waiting for Hanks to show up, and I was like, oh, where is he? Where is he? And as soon as he showed up, I was like, there he is. I was so happy to see him. Um, like, I'm really glad he had at least, like, you know, two scenes in this and one full-on complete like scene where he's the center of it. It's really funny to hear that they didn't even want to kill him off because he was such a nice, charming guy, like behind the scenes and everything. Like, even if he's not playing it on screen, at least he's genuine off screen. And that's just, that's, that was just a nice story to hear. Definitely. So as we mentioned on the first episode of Cruise Club, I don't know if anybody who's listening to this listened to that, but we are going to add a little bit of structure in a way, or maybe we're going to just have a segment at the end, depending on how the movie goes, to our conversations, because we did Cage and Keanu and Charlize and Shia and the Cinemakers movies too, with really sort of no real structure. So here we're going to add a little bit to kind of guide the conversation or to call attention to specific moments. So our, our favorite and least favorite moments of this movie, I guess, you know, I, I want to say my favorite moment obviously would be the Tom Hanks stuff. But really, I, I like the end, too. Like, I think the end where, like, the, the, the twist that Phil is the killer or a new killer, I thought that was kind of a cool way to go out on. So to save the sort of the echo of the first time, the first episode of Cruise Club, where I just said my favorite moment was the Tom, Tom Cruise moment, uh, this time I'll say the end, other than the Tom Hanks stuff, I really like the end. All right, yeah. You know, I feel like that really was the best moment of Endless Love, like, sincerely, like, yeah. when Tom Cruise showed up. To me, my favorite moment in this, like, the Hank stuff is great. Don't get me wrong. I like it. But um, it took me a little out of it because, you know, of the speech, how meta it was and things. I was like, oh, I don't know. That was weird. But my actual favorite part of this movie is the thriller moment when we find out that the movie we're watching is a movie being watched by two people in a movie yeah. theater. Like, I like that. I was like, oh, you know. Know, like I said earlier, like that, it got me invested. So it hooked me early and um, kind of like led me along the entire way where I was just like, oh, just now it's not going to deliver. I knew, you know, by the time Hank showed up, I was like, thank God he showed up because I knew this movie was not going to deliver at this point. What's your least favorite moment? Oh, boy. Like, mine, I don't know if I have specific moments. It just feels like all the lulls. Like, I understand that, like, a movie, like a slash, like, unless you're crank movies have lulls, right? Like, there's always going to be downtime, but it feels like there's so many for so long when there shouldn't be. Like, they should always be building story or tension. It just feels like there's so much of this movie that feels, in a way, inconsequential to what's going on. And so it's just sort of the the lack of story is my least favorite part about this movie. Okay. I I think I'm going to go with the dress fitting. I wrote down, why are we watching this? Why are we watching her, like, literally getting her dress taken in? But, like, I just didn't like the vibe of that whole thing with the cigar and and, and all that. It, It just gave me the willies. So that's my least favorite moment. Time to play the other Tom. If Tom Cruise was cast in this movie instead of Tom Hanks, how would it play out differently? My one thing that I would say is that instead of saying, I hate jogging, Tom Cruise would be like, I love running. (laughs) Nice, nice. Yeah, I think the way I'd play it is he would not be, you know, like sitting down and stretching or anything. Like he would be jogging and she would be jogging along trying to catch up and talk to him and he'd just keep going faster and faster and then kind of like turn around and be like hey what's your name and like that would be their meet cute like they would 
it would be like a whole jogging thing, and he'd never stop. Like um, a, a falcon and cap scene from the opening of Winter Soldier? Yeah, yeah, that would work. On your left? Yeah, and then I would also have him be in the rest of the movie to get murdered off, too. I want um, his murder scene. Like, that would be... Yeah, because especially, like, you know, when you have someone like Billy from Endless Love, the Tom Cruise character there, you kind of want to... Like, that kid, that, he's... I mean, he's a delight, and he's a burst of life, but if he was in this movie, that kid would be killed, for sure. <laughs> yeah, he'd be the killer. No. <laughs> All right, time, time to Stan Lee yourself, Mike. This is another game where if you want a walk-on role to this movie, either a role that exists or does not exist, how would you put yourself in He Knows You're Alone? So, all right, I had two. I'm going to go with, like, the weirder one, I think, because I feel like this is an actor thing that, like, when you're either first starting out or even later on, like, it's just kind of like a thing to put on your resume. I, I want to be a body in the morgue. Ooh, okay. Like, you know, like, I think that'd be something cool to put on the resume. Like, yeah, I was a, like, I, I feel like you see like, oh, I was a dead body on NCIS. I was a dead body on, you know, CSI or whatever. So like, yeah, it'd be like they'd be running through the morgue and, or like the guy's working on me or something. I don't know. I hope that's not too like dark. Or no, whatever, I like it. Like, Cause yeah. so you probably know like the AT&T girl, uh, Lily, who's like the, the cute brunette who was in all the commercials. I don't know if she still is, but she was in the commercials for like for years for AT&T. Uh, she's not going to play Squirrel Girl, Melina Weintraub. My sister and I used to watch, this is a little bit of a, me flashing my like I was there first card, but my sister and I used to watch on YouTube, she had a, a web series called Let's Talk About Something More Interesting and it was her and another girl and there was a, a sort of a running joke on that that like Milana, the only acting gigs that she could get were where she played a dead body and so her reel was just her playing dead bodies in like four different things and just always her lying still for like extended periods of time. So like, there is an art and a craft to it, so I think that's definitely a valuable trait to have, especially for a young actor trying to break into Hollywood. So uh, I think that's an excellent choice, Mike. I'm gonna go. With, I'm just gonna be the ice cream guy, where he just you know gets her a chocolate ice cream cone and then has to yell at her like when she's just like so rattled that she doesn't pay. What I thought is like so, okay, so she goes outside, slams the ice cream into Marvin, and then he's like, "This is gonna steam. Let's go get it cleaned off." They go back inside. I thought she was gonna say like, "Look at this dummy! Like I just knocked my ice cream into him. Can I have another ice cream?" But she just asked for water on the napkins like you know i would have been like oh like what happened here and then like then it would have been like the movie would have become about me at the ice cream shop so that's the better second half it feels like that guy was a real ice cream guy because he was so into his job and genuine <laughs> about everything like it felt so real to me that moment maybe very possible 50 cents for that cone or he's like so meticulous as an actor he's like we can't break the realism of the scene like she's gotta pay oh here's your change back ma'am we have an email address here on the show hanks h-a-n-x at cageclub.me send us an email let us know what you think of the show of Tom Hanks' career we are very early on the benefit I was thinking Mike is that because there's two weeks between episodes in theory it gives the listener more time to write in we will read it on air here hanks at cageclub.me we also have a patreon page patreon.com slash cageclub where you can go there and chip it a couple bucks and like really control what we watch uh, there are tiers on there that you can pick whatever you want us to watch, which is a scary proposition, but it's on there. If you want to get some Cage Club merch, if you want to just say hi, whatever you want to do, patreon.com slash cageclub. I've been posting, I don't know if you've seen Mike, but I've been posting as we record things, or as we're about to gear up for things, I've been posting little things there. So like I post the Tom Hanks clip from this movie on there. I post the Tom Cruise clip from Endless Love on there. Just a little bit of write-up, because we're recording a little bit ahead of time, just trying to get the fans, or at this point, just Melissa, excited for the podcast so patreon.com slash cage club even if you don't want to support us just go there say hi check out what we're posting there because it's stuff unique to patreon nice okay the awards time don't know what the awards will be called yet however 
We have the Tom Hanks Awards, like we've done in the other podcast, Cage Club, Keanu Club, Charlie's, Watch the Throne, nominating the best and the worst of Tom Hanks' career to then vote on when we finish, when we catch up to all of his movies. Best film, no. Worst film, no. Best of the worst, most fun, bad film, partially, but not overall. Almost, you know? It was it was heading there for me, but then it dropped the ball. I agree. Best role, worst role, no. Most wasted performance, I'm going to say no. No, I think it did exactly what it was supposed to do, right? It came yep. in, it said, you're watching a horror movie, you know? Like, literally... Tom Hanks was like, <laughs> his character says to the screen, he's like, like, could you imagine someone would pay to be scared and then like does everything but look directly at the screen? <laughs> like, I like that, though. Best fight. These are all from Charlie, so I don't know if these are going to apply, but best fight, dance scene, outfit, death, line, freak out. Like, so best line? Outfit, almost. I mean, he had that weird brown jacket and then, like we said, like the woody neckerchief thing happening. So close. His hair is also wildly curly. Yeah, he's got a huge fro like yeah. back in the day. Yeah. Nothing else than I don't think this is worth anything's worthy of best or worst non Hanks actor, male or female. So I think this one will go down in memory because it's the first one, but I don't think there's anything in this movie worth nominating, uh, good or bad. It's just it's a little slow. We're not doing lines or anything. Well we have best line, best freak out. Is there a line like I wanna goober wasn't too bad? I don't know. I, I was just wondering. Wanna goober? Want a goober in He Knows You're Alone. Oh, we'll put it there. Um, so the only other thing that we have, so when we did the first episode of Cruise Club, we made a note to, like, not a game necessarily, but see if Cruise runs or not. The answer to the first one was yes. I think, so here's, when I think of Tom Hanks and his, like, acting, not specialty, but, like, his, like, what he, maybe what he's known for. Like a calling card or something? A little bit, is to, like, kind of, like, look at you and turn his head and kind of, like, chuckle warmly. Like just like the, <laughs> I know, I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Weird, right? And does he do that in this movie? I feel like no. I wonder if he hasn't figured that out yet as an actor. I feel like he would have done it when he asked for a dime, and they have that little coded sex exchange that talk that that little like oh I don't play games things and I think like then he would have sort of like cocked his head bounced it once or twice and like given us half a smile or something you know I was thinking Mike this is not by a lot by a year this might be the earliest movie we've ever talked about oh wow really because Cage started in 81 Keanu in 81 Cruz in 81 Charlize in 95 Shia in like 03 or whatever and then I think the oldest what's the oldest Cinemakers we did 82 for Amy Hackerling, maybe? So again, just by a year, but this is the earliest movie that we've talked about. But what's also of note is that both Cage and Keanu were born in 64, Tom Cruise, 62, Tom Hanks, 56. So a little bit older when he gets to start. He's 24 here, as opposed to Cage like being 17. He looks younger than Cage, though. Oh, oh, definitely. But, you know, a, a few different things, a, f a few different differences uh, between Hanks and the other people. But yeah, does Tom Hanks chuckle warmly? I'm going to say no for this so far, for this episode, for this movie. Yeah. First one's a no. Last thing we have to do on the show is to feature another podcast here on the network. We are up to 24, I believe, shows at cageclub.me, so go there and check them all out. You know, Mike and I have done a bunch. There's also a ton of other shows that we are not involved in. That number is growing seemingly every month or two, so go check those out. The podcast I think we will feature this time, just like as we did last time on the Tom Cruise one, we'll, we'll feature the Tom Cruise podcast. These are two separate podcasts, Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, but they overlap, they align in their Tom Tom Club-ness. Same intro, same theme song. 
go check out Tom Cruise because they're sister podcasts. They're brother podcasts. They are different and yet so much the same. Yes. Two sides of the same coin. Yep. Mike, you know, you know, next episode already, episodes two and three, Bosom Buddies. Oh, man. Better start watching now. There's a bunch of those to come. So in two weeks, we will be back with Bosom Buddies season one. Next week, we'll be back for episode two of Cruise Club taps and then bosom buddies season one so a lot of tom toms every other friday or every friday there's a tom one tom hanks every other friday so go check those out go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on twitter and instagram to see all of the shows that we have more than 800 episodes to date across all shows so plenty of things for you to listen to we are slowly making our way now through the tom hanks and tom cruise filmographies but we have so many other shows so go to cageclub.me poke around Check it out. Email us, hanks, H-A-N-X, at cageclub.me. Go to patreon.com slash cageclub to support us, and just let us know that you're listening. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we'll see you in two weeks for Bosom Buddies Season 1, right here on Hanks for the Memories. I'd like to be Jay Paul.